Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Changes with me, Anning Mack. This is the place where we go deep on the word change and the many different ways it can affect our lives. First of all, I wanted to just check in and wish you well and wish you um, some kind of calm in terms of your mental health. I hope you're all right after this absolutely crazy week for the listeners of this uh, podcast who are black and brown. um, Just sending you all my solidarity and love. Two conversations that have proved really useful and enlightening for me and the people who've got back to me about it. One of them is the episode with Jamar Jonas. And then the following week, we had a conversation with Candice Brathwaite, who's the author of I'm Not Your Baby Mother, which is already sold out on Amazon. So those two people, one an 18-year-old boy, one a 30-year-old mother, uh, both talking from the perspective of the black communities and of uh, just their experiences of racism, Um, up to now really 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 insightful and helpful in terms of understanding right so that's that moving to now uh, I would like to introduce my guest this week so her name is Clover Stroud she is an author of two best-selling books she's a mother of five and uh, she grew up in Wiltshire and cared for her mother as a teenager when her mother fell off her horse and sustained a life-changing brain injury so she's had her fair share of a lot of traumatic events when it comes to health and her close family Uh, also her sister just passed away before Christmas her husband had a tragic accident as well just very recently so she's gone through a lot of which we will hear about in this episode Uh, but most of what she talks about in her most recent book is motherhood and the guardian reviews her book this is this is a quote from the review the motherhood she describes as the very antithesis of the sanitized smiling vision we are sold in washing powder ads there are no pastel colors here stroud's mother love is as raw and rare as cutting through the soft dark crimson of uncooked liver That's her line, by the way, Clover's own line. She writes so viscerally about the dark shadows of motherhood and family life. She is brilliant. And we had such a kind of transformative conversation that took place here in the Rave Shed uh, just a couple of days before lockdown began. So please enter the podcast, Clover Stroud. Okay, Clover Stroud is in my rave shed. Clover, hello. (laughs) So nice to be here. Thank you so much for driving all the way from the countryside to London. And change is what this podcast is all about. Mm. And you have gone through some extreme changes in Mm. your life, having read your books. And well, first of all, I just wanted to tell you what your book meant to me. Like you write about motherhood in a language that's only ever existed in my head. I've never heard people speak out loud in yeah, that way, that yeah. kind of really raw, honest mm. way where you show every corner of darkness that, that being a mother and a parent can mm. can 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 bring you. Um, so thank you, first of all, for telling the truth. <laughs> it's so nice to hear that. And I have been getting amazing messages on Instagram from 
people saying the same, basically, mm. that I've written the inside of their head and I've kind of voiced things that either they didn't want to say or that they didn't actually know how to say or they didn't know that they were feeling, but it, but it, but it was there. And it feels like a real um, privilege, actually, to mm. kind of connect with other women in this way. And it was part of the reason why I wanted to write the book was this kind of sense of making motherhood something that's seen, I suppose, yeah. because so much of it is so unseen. Yeah. We're going to get to that, but let's talk about change and you. And first of all, I, I wanted to say I'm so sorry about your sister who just mm. passed away. I mean, that mm. is a, a, a monumental change mm. that happened just, was it last year? Um, in December, yeah, Nell, mm. Nell died. Um, she was a couple of years older than me and she had had breast cancer for a few years, but she died very suddenly, actually, just, just before Christmas. So it's all pretty recent. How are you? Yeah, I mean, I'm OK, actually. I... Over Christmas, she died on the um, like early December, and I felt over Christmas I felt like my life is over, and I'm not going to get over this. And it was as though the rest of the world was kind of existing in a sort of tinselly, sparkly space, and I was in this kind of inner darkness. But I am, and I've been through grief before because my mum died in 2013. But I am reminded going through it that the human spirit is unbelievably incredible basically and resilient and our ability to adapt and change is extraordinary and you know I find myself three months later living with something that I thought was unbearable and and unendurable basically Mm. which was my sister's death and life does incredibly go on and that's what's so extraordinary the kind of rolling forward momentum so I'm okay and I'm I, I do think that death also enables you to kind of live life it's like a kind of secret thing that you get let into when you've gone through grief that life in some way does become brighter and sharper and more vivid. You know, it's like a rebooting. It's like a way of living again and through the incredible sadness, because, of course, I'm not in any way saying it isn't incredibly sad. But in order to not to be squashed and kind of destroyed by the sadness, I suppose, you see life with new lenses. And that is something to celebrate in some way. How are you finding the, the strangers of coronavirus and kind of everyone being forced to to be aware of their mortality more than ever? It's been really strange because I because grief p- puts you into a strange other world where you're walking along and everyone else is walking along near you but separate from you because it's such a sort of lonely process. And the virus has been very strange because it's felt like Everyone else has joined, you know, we're all now walking together. We're mm. all now kind of aware of a shadow of, of, let's be frank, of death. You know, that's what we're scared sure. of. And, um, and so in a strange way, it's made the grief that I've felt feel a little less, less lonely in some way or another. And I think that when you're, when you're, when you're mourning someone and the rest of the world feels like it is just sort of carelessly happily you know rolling forward there's right. that incredible Auden poem about stop all the clocks and and that really reflects that feeling of how how come life is going on as normal so the fact that we're all living these very strange lives now feels it feels quite natural at the moment in a strange kind of way and I and it's it's oddly consoling actually Your first change that we're going to talk about today, your teenage change, mm. so the one that that really affected you the most as a child. Tell me about that, please. So um, I had a really happy childhood. I grew up in Oxford and then in Wiltshire, and I'm the youngest of five, and I had a kind of big 
big family, bohemian. My dad worked in TV. My mum was a kind of 1960s, like, mom making her own bread and wearing long skirts. And it was really, really happy. And we moved to the country and... And I had a kind of really, you know, a pretty perfect childhood. But when I was 16, mum went riding and she, because um, we all rode and we had ponies and not kind of smart riding, just scruffy ponies out in the field. But mum fell off her horse and she was, um, she went into a coma and she was left, when she woke up from the coma, kind of three or four months later, she was left profoundly brain damaged. So she couldn't, to start with, she could walk, but she couldn't talk or communicate at all and she couldn't look after herself. And we tried having her living at home for two years mm. And I was in the first term of my A-levels and my sister Nell was supposed to be going on her year off and then I've got three older siblings who'd all left home by that stage and they actually were all married with kids. And my dad used to come home at the weekends and so suddenly I was kind of thrown into this really, really mad situation of living in a big rambling house in the countryside with no parents around. I mean, mum was there, but she was there like with carers and nurses and had no idea what was going on. And me and Nell, were, I was doing my A-levels and Nell was on her year off. And so it was really bleak and really gothic. And yes, it was also sort of what as a teenager you kind of slightly fantasise about, which is like oh, your yeah. parents being yeah. being away. So we had this like double kind of life of very high trauma because very traumatic what mum was going through and seeing her very very brain damaged um and kind of us struggling to reimagine her world was incredibly traumatic and yet at the same time we were living in this big house we had lots of friends over and it was kind of kind of exciting at the same time but after after two years we realized that I finished my A-levels and mum couldn't she needed like long-term mental and physical nursing health nursing so we sold my dad sold the house and he moved back to London and at that point I I went on the road with horses actually with horse-drawn travellers it was like the early 90s were were you given a choice though did your dad say right I mean because that's your family home did he say you can come and you know what did you have any choices at that point no we didn't really have any choices and it was clear that my dad couldn't keep this house going it would have been kind of madness because when I finished my A-levels I knew that I wanted to leave I didn't want to hang around mum had gone into a nursing home Nell had gone to university my elder siblings were all you know living away anyway with their own homes um so and and we I think that we had had quite a kind of a very liberal background which had encouraged us to feel that we could do anything that we mm. wanted and mm. growing up in the country and with ponies and stuff mum had given us this kind of sense of a toughness and a desire for adventure which has really 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 informed the rest of my life definitely since then so for me to kind of leave home at that point and go out adventuring was and it was adventuring definitely was my way of fighting against this traumatic situation as well because mum was alive you know the kind of tragedy of her accident didn't end it went on and on and on it was like being stuck in a kind of constant grieving state and going to visit her in nursing homes was really incredibly sad Mm. incredibly it made you feel sad and angry and guilty and confused and like where has mum gone you know where's where is she who is she how can I get through to her her again Mm. and um so that kind of propelled me out 
on a series of adventures. And I think throughout my 20s and into my 30s, my reaction has often been to kind of take myself out there into a sometimes a quite dangerous place, mm. but like to kind of push myself, I suppose, um, and propel myself forward sometimes into the face of danger almost as a way of like standing up against it yeah I mean that's one of the things that comes up a lot in your book is Mm. is you kind of feeling this compulsion to get close to the flame like Mm. to to stand near the fire yeah to nearly get burnt yeah you know yeah um you think that is a reaction to your trauma I def- of, of how to process it? Yes, I definitely, definitely think so. I think 16 is a really, really formative, right. formative age for something so traumatic to happen yeah. to you. And I think it kind of, and I write about this in my first book, The Wild Other, about trauma being kind of written into my DNA in some way or another. But I don't say that in a kind of self-pitying way. I think trauma can be something which is a catalyst for change and a catalyst for action, actually. And for yeah. me, it's been it definitely has been something which has which has motivated me. Sometimes that is a bit unsettling. It means that it makes it harder to kind of settle down and be quiet because I'm always I think I am kind of always slightly primed for what the next big thing that's about to happen and I have you know there's been mum's accident was actually just the start of quite a lot of quite traumatic events throughout my life right but I think of my life as one which has been full of adventure and full of colour and full of excitement I think of myself as someone very privileged and very lucky so it's not like the trauma isn't like a kind of big dead weight that I've pulled around with me it's been like yeah it's been like a firelighter that's always been there what are some of the the kind of wildest situations you have found yourself in because you really when you say adventure your measure of adventure it's like you know some people might go and like I know learn how to street dance you were you were like I'm gonna go and like ride rodeo horses in Texas yeah, I mean, I used the horses as a way of going into different worlds, I suppose, finding work in different worlds. I once did try and do backpacking. I went to Mexico with a boyfriend. I really didn't like the thing of, like, traipsing around with no real plan. Okay. But what I do like, you know, what I really have enjoyed doing is going abroad and working working abroad and finding a you know, a kind of community of people, I suppose, to be amongst. And for me, horses have pr- given me a passport into a, into sort of really exciting and quite extreme worlds. And also, I have to be really honest, like, horse men have always attracted me into those worlds as well. So I, yeah, I lived in Ireland for a bit and, and travelled with horses and lived with New Age travellers. In that Ireland? Was like, in Ireland, wow. yeah. yeah. So I worked in Dublin for a bit and then as a, as a waitress, which I was terrible at, but then I... Then I hooked up with this guy who's a traveller and we travelled with wagons through Tipperary and wow. down across Galway and down through Cork. Yeah, it was the it was like the early 90s, so there was horses and there was raving at the same time, which yeah. was really good fun. But then, and then I went to university and after university I had an intense desire to go and do something physical and not just like... I read English at university. I didn't want to just go and get a job in publishing and get a job. I thought, I've really got to get out and do something. So I went to America and kind of travelled around on Greyhound buses looking for something. I wasn't really sure what it was, although I had an idea. But I I saw in a junk shop this T-shirt which said, Texas is the reason. And I went to Texas basically in search of cowboys. I wanted to find out if cowboys were real and... And, um, 
you know, and this was like pre nine eleven. It was quite a long time ago as well. So it was easy. It was easy to just go into America. You know, I think I had a visa for like three months. I got extended, sure. extended that. And, yeah. But yeah, so I I rode in rodeos and uh, worked on a very tough ranch for a long time. Yeah. And then later, I was in Russia as well, actually. Yeah. And I spent some time in the Caucasus in Chechnya with this guy who was a horseman. And I think probably you asked what was the most dangerous thing I did. Yeah. That was probably it. When I was spending a lot of time in the mountains with him, it was sometimes it was kind of on the edge. It was probably the that was the most dangerous time, I guess. Yeah. 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 And would you say, you know, obviously this kind of this compulsion to, to seek danger and mm. to kind of court it a little bit? That's part of your personality that has been kind of forged in the fire from from your mother's um, accident, would you say? Yes, I uh, I, I don't know if it's courting danger, but I think that in my writing, what I'm interested in is is our emotional lives and our interior lives, basically. And I'm really, really interested in the way we feel about things and why we feel those things. And I think for me, kind of manifesting my sense of aliveness in the face of mum's accident because mum was in this state for 22 years of like a living death essentially for me it was like making myself feel feel alive as possible right and what I what I have loved doing in my writing is to express those feel you know those feelings and um and so yeah it's definitely it's definitely a part of the the need for the need for deep feeling and and that's what i've tried to do with this you know with the second book mm. because i think the lives of mothers can be as you know we need as much bravery and fortitude to get through the day at home with toddlers as you do to go off and get on a greyhound bus and travel around the world mothers are as brave definitely as yeah. those people out there adventuring that's one of the things i loved about the book is kind of seeing seeing your motherhood as as a dangerous, courageous, very hard thing to do, you mm. know, in places, not mm. all the time, obviously. So you were the youngest of five. Mm. What Did it mean a lot to you to try and create the same idyllic upbringing for your children as you had? Yeah, um, so I had two children in my 20s um, with this guy who was a musician and we had a kind of very, very short-lived and quite exciting and kind of chaotic marriage, which ended quite violently and not very well. And then I, and whilst I was living in Oxford, so I was a single mum for about 10 years before I met my second husband. And I was aware then that I wanted the kids, and I was really, really skinny. I was just starting to work as a journalist, freelance journalist, two small children. My only income was what I made because my ex-husband didn't support them at all. And we didn't have very much money, but I did want to give them this a sense of kind of... Um, freedom and outdoorness and and we were living in Oxford and so we used to you know go and have like barbecues on Port Meadow this big meadow in the middle of Oxford mm. and I kept a pony which cost me like 10 pounds a week and these allotments so I even from very little I guess I was trying to kind of fashion together a sense of outdoorness and some kind of adventure for them you know yeah. in our little domestic life in Oxford and then I met Pete who I was at university with and we got married and had three more children. So we had f- five children quite, um, you know, it felt like we, I went from two to, to five quite yeah. quickly. 
And I, and when after my fourth child was born, Dash, I did feel like an overwhelming sense to get. We were living in Oxford, but I thought I've got to get back out to the countryside and out into the fields. And um, I I I just needed basically needed with that many people, I needed space. And I did, yeah, I did really really want to reconnect with something visceral I guess yeah. and something quite raw from my childhood and so we yeah we moved out to West Oxfordshire and it's really quite remote and really quite rural where we live and sometimes that drives me completely nuts especially because Pete works in London most of the week so I'm basically on my own Monday to Friday with the kids sometimes I really fight against that and find it really deranging and think oh we've got to move to London and then I think oh I just couldn't you know we couldn't I couldn't cope, especially with my my five year old. My fourth child, Dash, is a really full on personality, and them yeah. all being in the city, I would find too much. Because yeah, for me, touching something from the past does feel profoundly important. I guess it maybe is a way to remain connected to my mum and now connected to Nell as well, actually. Yeah. And for us horses, and we have horses, but they are like these muddy black and white ponies that are out in a field it's not I think when you say horses people often think oh it's very posh and you yeah, know show yeah. jumps and lorries and so on it isn't like that at all it's like the kids pulling a little scruffy Shetland pony in fact we've got a Shetland that comes into the kitchen I saw well. the photo I saw the photo was it Evangeline on the yeah pony? Evangeline on the pony yeah incredible and I think also for me, motherhood does drive me quite mad and like being in the park and pushing them on a swing or whatever I find that quite difficult I find driving them around waiting for them outside endless you know karate practice quite difficult and for me having a couple of ponies is a way of like doing something that I selfishly that I really really enjoy yeah. and it kind of makes it bearable and it means they're outdoors and um yeah it sort of makes it 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 may it turns motherhood and I've been mothering you know I'm 44 now I've been mothering since I was 24 so you've had 20 years 20 years of and Jimmy's 19 and, the, and there'll be how, how many years would it be do you think until um until your youngest is like leaving home until have, have you figured it out home. yeah no I, <laughs> is it scary it's like no it is it's well he's three so I reckon you know in sort of 14 15 years because I'm really aware as well having watched my watch Jimmy go through his teenage life that he of course he's like leaving me all the time but he still needs me and he still wants me and having that kind of teenage relationship is really important of like communication and connection to them so it's not as though they become teenagers and you can just kind of that's what I found so fascinating about it was the parallels that you wrote between having a teenager and a toddler yeah and the process of mothering being nearly exactly the same yeah in terms of what you have to give them watching them all the time observing them like it's so fascinating (laughs) as a mother of toddlers thinking like god this really doesn't end it really doesn't end yeah it really doesn't end and but I would say as a sort of as a kind of consolation for that the kind of hard labor looking after toddlers is bloody hard work the kind of lifting and carrying and wiping and consoling and 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 you know stroking and mm. and loving them in that very sort of um physical mm. physically exhausting way obviously jimmy doesn't want me to be wiping yeah. him and lifting him in that yeah. way so and the pleasure that i get out of my teenage children the kind of joy of having them around and i know teenagers get such bad stick but i think 
And this was another reason why I wanted to write this book was that because people despair of their teenagers. And Jimmy got into a lot of trouble. He got yeah. expelled. And, you know, I mean, yeah, was... the book opens with him. Mm. We, we did this, again, really powerful scene of you, you know, trying to breastfeed, having cracked nipples, being in the throes <laughs> of new motherhood, off yeah. your head with the hormones of yeah. new motherhood. And then you have this teenage son who's, who's caught smoking weed in yeah. school. Yeah. It's just the extremities of parenting all in one go. Yeah, yeah. No, and I was, I was really aware that I was going through this, the, like the moment of having a newborn baby and and your eldest son hitting adolescence at the same time were um were well you know it was it was difficult and I was 39 and a half weeks pregnant and I got this call from school and Jimmy who I'd thought mm. oh he's so he's always out in the fields camping he's always <laughs> he's such a lovely fresh-faced boy I had no idea at all that he was going and getting really stoned and as as like most teenagers are it wasn't mm. you know I don't think that I've kind of revealed anything which is particularly surprising to anybody who's brought up teenagers but um it was yeah it was an extreme time it was like being in the in the trenches of motherhood definitely yeah. and I wanted to I also kind of wanted to record it because that time has passed in a way and um Jimmy's 19 now and Lester's three and and I wanted to kind of record that sort of sticky intense passionate awful despairing beautiful time mm. how how you know you you said that that people reached out to mm. you where you worried about any judgment or any sort of negative reactions when you when you wrote this book I mean I was aware yes I definitely was and I and I thought about it and I and I talked with my um publisher about it and I talked with Pete my husband about it and I talked to Jimmy about it because he was aware that I was writing sure. it at the same time but I think that by being completely honest and completely open you are you know I'm not hiding anything in this book I've been really really open about motherhood about my kids about my marriage about my sex life working life mm. and in a way I think when you say yes this is who I am and this is how it is for me it liberates other people as well and mm. it and it kind of stops the judgment because what could people kind of really criticize you know it's you know it's not as though i'm i think if you're kind of sort of hiding something or pretending to be somebody different from who you are that's when you're more open to criticism and i also think that the book is um threaded through with a very strong kind of sense of the spine of love that goes through it Absolutely. all the way through and that's yeah. the backbone of it the made book. me more it made me want more children forever <laughs> I had just dangerous territory I just I literally just come out of a long year of being like will I won't I will I won't I to a won't I I, as in to a, I won't. And then I finished your book. I was like, fuck it. I, I, there's still time. Yeah. <laughs> there's still, I could still do this. But that's uh, what's so extraordinary. If I have about... a girl, I'll call her Clover and it'll be all your fault. <laughs> but that's what's so amazing about motherhood, though, is that it takes you, you know, you just think I cannot spend another afternoon on my knees picking up bits of pasta and, and Play-Doh from the kitchen floor and then you see a newborn baby, you hold a newborn baby or you see like it's a It's like a drug. Totally like a drug. It's totally, it is a drug. Yeah, you compare, it, yeah, like you compare a, it to the feeling of ease mm, that you had mm, when you were a teen, mm, when you were younger. Mm, like that feeling mm, of kind of euphor, mm, euphoric high. Mm, mm. It's and mad. it makes you forget everything else. But all the bad bits is gone. Yeah. It is just that sense of a kind of absolute rightness and an absolute... Um, kind of 
perfect you know the sort of perfection and i i particularly love giving birth actually yes. i really really and i wanted I, to not, talk to you about that i'm not saying that birth isn't very fucking painful and undignified and, and scary you crap yourself yeah and all these fluids come out of you, you make weird noise it's very scary but what a cosmic and incredible thing to do and we are so lucky that we have the yeah. chance to kind of for me i think having you know i think that it's a chance to take yourself to the brink of existence and i don't want to sound too woo woo about it but i think you know it it is it's life and death and um and i was with my sister when she died and i was with my mother when she died and i'm really aware and obviously this isn't an original thought but like life and death being such a similar process and the kind of struggle into life being born is very similar to can be very similar obviously all you know all births and and deaths are different but like it can be very similar to to being with somebody when they die as well and watching them kind of pass into the next place and i really believe that in birth you take yourself right to the edge of the brink you take yourself to the place where the film between life and death is very 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 thin maybe it's completely removed and i haven't experienced anything else in life that kind of allows me to do that and I don't even think it's like pain it's so extreme the mm. the pain the feeling of, of of birth is that it's like a whole different you know it's a whole different thing I suppose and I wish that more people could I mean birth really really polarizes women doesn't it very because much so. we have very different experiences yeah. but I think a voice saying you know it doesn't have to be about um a voice saying this can be like a moment of kind of physical extremity which is very very exciting mm. and it's you know kind of I think basically forget the whole idea of whale sounds and hypnobirthing mm. I'm not saying forget hypnobirthing but let yourself kind of be utterly utterly human and kind mm. of feel like a warrior as you go into into birth and mm. I think for me that was the was the most powerful thing and actually I'm where as I'm talking to you I'm clenching you my are. face you are. <laughs> because that feeling of like I am going over the brink and kind of um I remember in birth thinking I need to like channel Mel Gibson in Braveheart <laughs> <laughs> and that's going to help me a lot more than than kind of gentle yogic breathing personally but maybe that's just my personality yeah, yeah. but again you know the way that you describe it in the book it, it's it's a very long slow description of every feeling and sensation mm. that comes over you mm. and you are literally gripped I nearly walked into a lamppost reading it so I <laughs> read it on the way to work I got out the tube and I nearly killed myself but yeah I've been through that twice mm. obviously and mm. I had similar birthing experiences to you mm. in that they were kind of very fast and mm. furious there was no time for drugs both times mm. and and part of that was terrifying but also part of it was you know I'm so grateful for the fact that I just had to I had to I was forced to get on with it. Yeah. But the thing that struck me the most about it was the as you say the, the kind of physicality of it and the fact that you your your cerebral self um you are literally just you are kind of hostage to your body and mm. you you have to it's like you're going on a roller coaster ride and you have to go right just take me there like you are in charge yeah. now. Yeah. I am just going with you. Yeah. I also said it's like the, the, the ultimate bear hunt. Bear hunt. <laughs> You can't go over it. You can't go round under it. You've got to go yeah. through it. And that sense that you have to go across it on your own, like, gives me a real respect for 
for you know for women who do this but did did you find that when you after you'd given birth it gave you a sense of like greater power in the way that you went around the rest of your life absolutely yeah yeah, yeah. It, it gave me a whole new respect for mm. my for my body yeah I looked at it in a completely different way yeah I looked at it in a way where it was useful and yeah. strong a tool yeah. a yeah. weapon even well you stop thinking oh my bum is too big my legs are too short yeah my hair's not how I want it you th- and now I look at my body I think good body yeah. <laughs> you know you've like I given mean, birth five times and five clover times. and you've and you've like fed children and, and you've looked after children and like i think that that kind of um you know the appreciation of your flesh is an interesting thing as yeah. well not as a, not for aesthetic senses at all yeah but for what it can actually what it can actually do yeah um let's talk about you mentioned that you talk about sex openly and again Mm. I just thought that was such a revolutionary even Mm. thing to do in terms of what I've read I've never seen anything like that you talk about that you like being dominated by your husband you talk about liking porn all of these things that still feel like a ridiculous taboo for mothers like um why do you think it is still so taboo for 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 mothers and motherhood to not be associated with with sex with sex and being sexy and being sexually progressive you know well I think generally as a society we are incredibly uptight and oppressed about sex and we are basically really scared of it and I think that it is something about and I write about you know sex is a place where you can be all the things that you can't be in motherhood like in motherhood you have to be clean and kind and patient and interested in crafts and interested in other people's children you have to kind of sometimes pretend to be a load of things that you're not and when you when you have sex you can like access something much more um animal and much more fundamental Mm. in yourself um but in terms of yeah i think from a societal point of view and so so in a way if all of society is kind of slightly scared by sex the idea that mothers who are supposed to be the sort of in a way, the ultimate kind of kind, sweet caregivers, really, aren't mm. they? The idea that you should have a sort of animal lust sort of transgresses that whole idea that we are these calm people. Um, but I think, and, and I think that uh, being more open about it, and I've written really, really, op- yeah, as you say, really, really openly um, about, you know, my my relationship with my husband, for example, Um I think it is a kind of relief for, for other people because everyone at the school gate, for example... How's, see, that, how's that gone? <laughs> people are... You know, I often feel very kind of lonely at the school gate and quite weird and I'm always rushing and I'm not very good at kind of... I like a conversation like this, but I don't really like normal chit-chat. I want mm. to talk about the real stuff, about sex and death and life and violence and that doesn't really fit in at the school <laughs> gate. <laughs> However, people have been really nice and like, you know, other mums have said, oh, I'm really enjoying your book and it's quite a raunchy read, isn't it? And you realise that we, I think that people want to talk about these things, but but they're kind of, you know, that exactly what you've just said that sort of like repression stop stops us feeling that we're able to mm. and obviously there is a time and a place for it but kind of admitting to being fully human is something that we're not really very comfortable with still another reason that I, I wanted to write this book was I went onto Instagram when Lester was born so he was a newborn baby and I was I was looking at Instagram and I was really um, kind of interested by and sort of horrified by the way at that time it was three and a half years ago it was a bit more Instagram was a bit more perfect you know mm. the images that people were presenting mm. is a bit more kind of perfect and with my Instagram I'm trying to just be real and who I genuinely am and I think that sense of um, people wanting 
you know, real life, I mean, particularly in these strange days that we're in right now, feels more and more and more important to connect mm. as human beings and not as like perfect little grid squares of of an idea or an ideal mm. of how we should be. Mm. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Pete, your husband, mm. he he kind of crops up. You had, to, you had a description for... for Forgive, it was, wasn't trauma, but it was something impressed by your patience and your kind of restraint to to him not being around and you kind of doing a lot of the solo parenting. How how do you manage? How do, deal how do you do it? Yeah. How do you, and I was thinking as you were talking, actually, your father wasn't around, so maybe it was what you knew. It's partly what I. It is partly what I knew as a child growing up that that my dad was always away working. He worked TV, so he was always away filming, and he was in London, and Mum was with us in the countryside. Right. So is and I think that an element of being a bit separate and knowing that you can survive and knowing that you can cope with life is quite healthy as well and that you can live in your own space is quite healthy but I do really miss Pete and we have a we have a really good relationship and I really love him and I and I I really love being around him so it is it is really difficult and something I address in the book is that you know motherhood takes you to a place of inequality that we have not sorted out yet basically and when I met Pete I was um earning the same as him and I bought a house I was living in Oxford had two kids and then we started having children and obviously my work had to kind of slow and um, because we had another three children as well my work had to slow down a bit although I've con totally continued writing and working and earning some money through you know the kids mm. being young because for me that's been my just, sanity I'm also so basically. impressed by that yeah but um he has had to go out he's had to go away and earn more mm. and his work is quite international so he goes he does travel quite a lot yeah. but we made decisions about you know the fact for his career to work in the way that it does that he would have to be away for longer periods of time so I don't know how me and Pete, we just, it is difficult and like managing one's resentment for the fact that you're at home and he's, you know, off doing something interesting abroad or is, is not straightforward. But um, I feel, I feel lucky that I do have a career and I, and I, I also feel grateful to him that he, because he really misses the children too, mm. you know, and he's made sacrifices in terms of family life. Mm. And I think in terms of our relationship, communicating it, because resentment builds up very fucking quickly. Yeah. yeah. How do you think, I mean, it's something that I think about constantly. How do you think it can be fixed, this inequality that you speak of? 
Is it about shared parental leave? Is it about paternity when kids are born? Like if Pete had the option of having six months off mm. would it, would he or have... you sharing your maternity, you know, you're freelance obviously so you, you yeah. have your own, but you know, would that have made a difference? For I you? mean, more flexibility around working and maybe the situation that we're in now is going to create, create mm. that as well, interestingly. I don't know whether saying we're going to split it down the middle and we're going to do 50-50 is going to work. I'm sure you know what it's like in terms of sometimes one person has more work, always being offered better paid work or work which might lead to more, you know, yeah. greater prospects. So saying very, very stringently, it's going to be 50-50 and you're going to do this much yeah. and I'm going to do that much. For me, that doesn't work. And I write about in the book about when Jimmy got expelled, the school talking about zero tolerance and, and within parenthood, the whole idea of zero tolerance being so ridiculous because being a parent requires you to be so, so sort of supple in the way you think and change, mm. you know. And, and I think in a way with a relationship, it's a sim that a similar need to say, you know, maybe it will be that Pete will have worked a lot when the kids are really small and then, sure. you know, as they get slightly older... Um, you know, if I'm writing another book, I yeah. don't know, you know, anything could happen, might get a film deal, whatever, yeah. contract in America, who knows, then we would be prepared to kind of be that su that supple, I suppose. I think what's really fundamentally important, which I understand, is not getting stuck in a role, right. you know, the role of the one who's been out working all the time and is knackered, or the role of the really pissed off mum who's at home all the time, or the role of the one who doesn't want to have sex, or the role of the one who always gets angry, you know, to yeah. kind of, like, check your thinking, I suppose. And the communication is just utterly utterly key to to and also forcing yourself to talk about stuff which is which is difficult and forcing yourself to kind of really really address the problems when they are happening sure yeah and and not I think that 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 thing of not being in a role is is part of helping to make a relationship work mm. definitely mm. As someone who who's had you know who's parented every stage of, of kids at this point and, and has the kind of experience of that, what is your favourite stage? The favourite stage, the favourite stage is kind of like always the one that you're in, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that's you, when me and Tim were always like, oh, this is the best bit. Yeah, this is the best bit. Yeah, I have to say at the moment I am really loving like Jimmy and Dolly are sixteen and nineteen. Yeah, and they're really funny. They've got great, they're all at state school, all the kids are at state school, all their friends are really, they're like a complete cross-section of, of yeah. kids from different backgrounds and and I love them being in the house. I love them all, Jimmy and his mates, like, I don't know, sitting around listening to techno and then yeah, yeah. and like smoking cigarettes. I made them dig a vegetable patch out in the garden a couple of days ago and um, I do love the teenagers. They're funny and yeah. they're on the cusp of like leaving, you know, properly leaving. Yeah. So I think that you do, and I write about this at the end of the book, that sudden desire when you get to the end of your children's childhood and adolescence to like want to grab hold of them and mm. take them back to the beginning. And so I guess that with the younger kids, they're three, five and seven, I'm aware that we've got many years to walk through together. Whereas the teenagers... I love their surprises. I love their company. I feel incredibly lucky to to spend time with them and that they want to, to yeah. spend time with me as well. So and also because teenagers do get bad stick and oh they're so difficult and they're on social media and they're, you know, these weird your lovely sweet little children become these alien beings. Mm. I haven't found that 
and that's again I think about communication and and remaining connected in some way or another even when you're fighting with them even mm. when you're I wrote about like once picking up a cowboy boot and throwing it at Jimmy because I really wanted to hurt him he was yeah. being a real fucking nightmare at that moment yeah and being able to kind of throw a boot at your son and then say it's okay let's go and like have a cup of tea and have a chat or whatever yeah. it's really important yeah. Yeah. And, you know, as a mother, you do seem really kind of open to them being able to make mistakes around you, not Mm. trying to bolt them down and box them in. Mm. And, um, you know, even as far as kind of letting them letting Dash play with matches when he's a toddler, you know, a lot of parents be like, no, (laughs) you have this kind of quite, Mm. quite open approach to having them learn about about the dangerous things in life. Mm. Um, Tell me about that. Yeah, no. Well, I think that that is also definitely born of well, it's partly my childhood of of um, riding ponies and swimming in rivers and and lighting fires or whatever in the garden and being allowed to do that. And that's partly because it was like the 70s and 80s and people were yeah. less anxious about safety. But um, I am aware that life is painful and it's difficult and that the kind of need, the sort of feel, the impulse and the kind of current trend around parenting, I suppose, of like controlling our kids and the um, helicopter parenting and being on them all the time is not equipping them with the tools that they need to get through life and the idea that your a stars are going to help you get through life is uh, really flawed I think Mm. and um, teaching children about making mistakes and lighting matches and I mean I watched Dash and Lester sitting out in the garden and I wouldn't let them light a, a load of matches on a sort of rush matting carpet or something like that but they were doing it outside yeah. and they were burnt their little fingers had little tiny burns on them but they were learning about how to strike matches and they were learning then when not to you know when yeah. not to strike matches I was teaching them through their you know through them kind of slightly getting getting a little bit hurt by it as well um where something was going to be painful where something was going to fail and my life has been you know life is really fundamentally painful it's difficult it's full of massive massive challenges and kind of sending your children out into the world having already felt what some of that I'm not saying in pain. a safe space. Yeah, yeah, but you know, having having tried something, failed at something, yeah. feels incredibly important. In fact, it feels irresponsible not to have taught them about that. Yeah, and life is definitely going to hurt them. Nobody can have a life that isn't going to have you know yeah. a lot of a lot of pain in it. Essentially, when the difficult and dark things happen, it doesn't mean that your life's gone wrong. It doesn't mean that everything's unravelled. It's life, you know, mm. and um. A couple of years ago, Pete had a massive accident in a terrorist scare in Oxford, in um, on Oxford Street, and broke both his legs really badly and was in a wheelchair. And I haven't written about that before, actually, but um, it really God. threw our life into. How a, long was he in a into, wheelchair for? So he was in a wheelchair for um, about seven months. Wow! And he suddenly couldn't do anything at all, and I mean anything at all. So we were, I was looking after him, and kind that of must have given you huge. Horrible flashbacks and kind of yeah, the really, memory really jolts to your mummy. Thing is that it also happened on the anniversary of my mum's accident. Oh my <laughs> god, Clover! It was re- and so that day. I'm always in late November. I'm always aware. You know, anniversaries are very potent things, and I'm always aware running up to it that this is what I was doing before mum had her accident, and then this was the time that Nell came into school to say mum's had an accident. We've got to go and see her in hospital. So you can remember the exact timing of that day. 
and suddenly I was getting a call saying like your husband's in a like being in a terrorist scare and you have to come to London immediately and talking to the police so it was really 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 weird and um it was it wasn't it the day that they had the false alarm in Oxford yeah, Circus exactly right. exactly and um and it was but I'm quite I think I'm also because of all the stuff that's happened to me, I'm quite good at dealing with that kind of yeah. <laughs> yeah. trauma, I suppose, in a way. And and it was a really hard time, but actually we kind of made... And, and Pete is, you know, he's, he, he's in pain when he walks, but he can walk. And he's someone who really likes talking, luckily, and he's really clever and he's brilliant at chatting and he's brilliant at conversation. And, and he's not somebody who, like, ran marathons or played football particularly. So he's not had to give up a big kind of okay. physical career. And actually adapting to it, and he can still work, and, you know, his, his, that's, that's absolutely fine. I think that it's, in some ways, it has enhanced our life. It has, like, mm. brought us closer... It's a period of time that the kids remember, you know, and it's it's kind of shown the children in some way or another how to survive, maybe, you know. Mm. It's shown the children. And I remember when we were going to a clinic appointment and his surgeon said, like, keep on talking to each other because this is the kind of thing people get divorced over. And the kids to see that this really quite could have been quite a catastrophic thing has happened and that we can keep on going and we can survive and we can thrive through it It feels like a really important lesson you know really Mm. important thing that they've they've witnessed as well Mm. and how 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 is he now is he all right he's all right yeah he is all right he can he can walk you know he's he's got a hell of a lot of metal in his leg and he's and he has pain but he's um he doesn't have constant pain and he um and he he manages it Mm. um this book or maybe say both books that you've written uh, that that have been so deeply personal Mm. they've kind of been accounts of your life Mm. right what have you learned about yourself through writing these books Mm. and have they helped you get to know yourself more yeah I think that's a really interesting question and I think that um what I realized a few days ago so I worked for about 16 years as a journalist before I wrote the wild other and we and that coincided of when us moving out from from oxford to oxfordshire which you know so we moved from the city out into the countryside and it had and at times i found my life out there alone with the children quite often very isolated and difficult sometimes really difficult definitely and i have also on and we live near the ridgeway which is this ancient kind of these ancient hills and it's dotted with like um, chalk horses and stone circles and yeah. I spend quite a lot of time walking on the ridgeway in the mud in the rain with my dog and um, and I have I've understood that that through living in quite a remote place and it is weirdly remote in West Oxfordshire it's only half an hour from Oxford but it is it's not at all like the Cotswolds it's not mm. at all kind of smart or gastro pubby it's really it's it's kind of big open countryside and I definitely think that moving there has enabled me to access and to communicate and to express some deeper emotions within me and I sometimes wonder if we'd stayed living in the city whether I would have been able to write these two books in such a way and through this kind of um contact with the country and with the openness and with the um solitude I've really understood more about my emotions yeah Mm. and more and understood how um kind of acute and 
colorful my emotions are i think somebody asked me if i see emotions they would they would oh yeah because i described i described despair in the book like a um i described the despair of spending the day with a toddler and a baby <laughs> and the boredom and the cleaning that was required like a lob the color that a lobster is that kind of bluish bluish blackish reddish dark color that a lobster is before it's been cooked and I um creatively I really enjoy the feeling of you know my emotions suddenly kind of popping out I mm. suppose so I think that writing the books has it's it has helped me to understand myself more but it's also through access to to the landscape as well and I mm. find that consoling because it can be really fucking annoying living in the middle of the countryside it's very yeah. muddy I have to drive everywhere there's no like cinemas within walking distance but because I'm fundamentally really interested in what we feel and how we feel it and why we're feeling it it's sort of a price worth paying basically yeah how do you think you know you've you've touched on kind of three big big kind of traumatic situations Mm. your mother now most recently and Pete Mm. also how do you think you have survived these changes in your life um I think that and my, can I say, say divorce also? Like the, <laughs> divorce, divorce could be someone's whole defining change, and that's just a small aside for you. Yeah, <laughs> I think that I'm more and more aware of love, how important love is. Yeah, and uh, I was, and actually, I feel slightly emotional talking about this, but I was loved very, very, very deeply by my mom and my dad, and my dad's totally alive, and I absolutely adore him and talk to him every day, and my stepmother. But um, mum really gave us. A, somebody said she want she bathed you in love and she did she didn't she was she wasn't like all over us in terms of like doing doing painting or playing on the floor games on the floor but she was there she made us feel that we could kind of do stuff that we wanted to do she made us believe in ourselves by her presence basically and um i think that that kind of charged me through life and every parent can give their child that you know wherever mm. you live whoever you are that sense of kind of I am there for you and I believe in you and you can do it is whatever you know however you're failing however you're worrying whether school's not working you can do it it's going to be okay keep going I love you it's just the message to communicate to your children and I think that the thing that enables me to kind of keep on and survive all this stuff is that sense of love and I after I got divorced from my first husband my my I had you know a few years where it was just me and Jimmy and Dolly and it was quite it was hard financially but we were so and we still are really 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 close Mm. and and that kind of um that feeling of of love that we had together and then meeting Pete has been like was such a kind of massive revelation for me to meet somebody who totally accepted all the fucked upness of me of being a human all the stuff that I was most kind of ashamed of and we all have stuff that we're ashamed of, of that we I could tell him about that I could express that to him and he didn't kind of shy away or judge me in fact he loved me more for it and I think that that is and, and you know our, our marriage is like any marriage it's not gazing into each other's eyes it's very argumentative we occasionally say you know it's time to get divorced we have those rows we have those really really bad mm. rows but we do love each other and I do think that that thing of god you know life is difficult and when you find somebody 
that you love and that could be a friend as well right. or it could be a single mother with your children that's what yeah. I felt you know it doesn't have to be a romantic relationship it doesn't have to be like a partner but that kind of feeling of loving each other as human beings feels is everything you yeah. know it's everything and with that you can withstand um all of the worst stuff because I really have dealt with a lot of worse you know of the worst stuff and the kind of knowledge that love is there is the most important it's the most important thing that we can teach our kids and also that we can say to each other I say to a lot of my friends I love you and it feels communicating it feels really really important more mm. important than ever now yeah Clover thank you so much <laughs> it's lovely talking to you it's such you. a nice conversation <laughs> I feel a little misty eyed now <laughs> thank you thank you very much honey it's been lovely so the book My Wild and Sleepless Nights available now mm. go get and you will not regret it hopefully you will end up a blubbering mess in bed <laughs> like I did uh, and you know what it really inspired me to write about my oh, family because really? I kept journals all my life mm. about my life and then when I had kids I stopped Mm. because everything else got in the way mm. so it's it's been so nice um just to be reminded of, of 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 them being the most beautiful and they're right in front of me like i should be writing about them the whole time yeah so it's been nice to get back into that so oh, thank brilliant. you that's yeah. great shout out to clover stroud for that incredible conversation i loved talking to her i loved kind of that last question and answer of her really kind of concluding her whole message which is just how she is driven and motivated by this fierce love and how the kind of brief but very 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 crucial love from her mother at the start of her life has kind of shaped the whole rest of her own life um i hope you enjoy that please do let me know what you thought write us a review on apple podcasts and also message me on instagram and just tell me your thoughts it's so nice to hear from you and thank you for sharing your thoughts on Wad al Khatib last week naomi james posted this review on apple podcasts thank you for saving me from myself and my kids during this strange time i treasure my escape with annie to the end of the garden hidden from the world where i got lost listening to inspiring thought-provoking and genuinely brilliant conversations Thank you, Naomi. There's something about being at the end of the garden, isn't there? <laughs> I spend a lot of time there myself. Um, and on Candice Brathwaite, Gary says, Candice is an intelligent, courageous black woman telling her story unashamedly. She is saying what black people have been thinking and feeling in such a relatable way. Yeah, that's one of the things that struck me from Candice's episode is just how brave she was in talking about her own traumas and in kind of flying the flag for black women in London and in the UK at large. Um, I just loved her. And uh, yeah, go check out that that podcast. You probably won't be able to get her book right away because it's in such high demand now. But uh, do go check out that podcast. Next week, we welcome Sinead Burke. She is a fashion guru. She is a disability activist. She is smart. She is hilarious. She is Irish. And uh, we talk about some massive changes that she's gone through in her life. And most importantly, the huge changes she's affecting in the fashion industry when it comes to representing people with disabilities. So, yeah, have a gorgeous week and we'll be back next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.